confusion for you. All eyes on Graham Paul. Simunic, I'm certain, was yellow carded earlier on, and Graham Paul has forgotten about it. Oh, and Siemens been beaten. It's a goal. It's Ronaldinho. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. Oh, what a great goal that was. Three lions on the shirt. Jules Rimet still gleaming. 30 years of hurt never stopped me dreaming. On the 30th of July 1966, the eighth World Cup final took place at Wembley Stadium, London, between England and West Germany. How did we get there? Who were the key characters in this most legendary of stories? This is the story of England 1966. The referee looks at his watch. Any second now, it will all be over. 30 seconds by. Our watch and the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up. It's all over, I think. No, it's... And here comes Hurst. He's got some people around the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. Welcome back to another fresh out the kitchen episode of Got Got Need. <laughs> My name is Chris Robinson and I'm joined as always by the sultry tones of Liam Baxter. Oh, that was very, you know, that's very polite of you, thank you. Um, <laughs> do you know what's really depressing about that intro? Like, it's a, it was a great intro, but that's, that's almost, it's almost doubled now. It's almost six yeah. years. Like, that, I mean, that song in itself is almost as old as the gap between the winning and the song coming out. Like... <laughs> God, that, that's, a, that's old, a clip. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody yeah. hell! Right, how are you, man? You good? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I uh, good. I spent spent my weekend watching a bit, going full football hipster and watching the Copa Libertadores final. So you know, yeah, it's good that that's like broadcast on iPlayer. Like, I'm really happy that there's just you know there's kind of it's, it's just available here now. Hmm. You can kind of watch that stuff. I was really yeah, I was happy when the, the semi-finals were broadcast on. On iPlayer, and I caught about 60 minutes of it yesterday, turned it off because it was boring, and then we just caught up before the podcast, and it turns out I missed all the action in the last 10, 15 minutes, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very me thing to do. Yeah. Other, other than that, how are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm all good. I was I was up bright and breezy this morning. I got out and did a run first thing, and then made, what did I make? I tried to do like homemade McMuffins with like veggie stuff and they were good uh my wife didn't like her so i ate hers as well <laughs> and now i'm sat here recording with sort of two mcmuffins in my belly so yeah nice. i'm i'm chipper i'm good wonderful wonderful cool well listeners welcome back to another episode of got got need today we're obviously talking about england winning the world cup in 1966 now you have to excuse us for taking until near the end of the second season of this show to talk about this but we don't we don't tend to go directly for the obvious stories when talking yeah. about the world cup so so it's it's been deliberate it's all by design um, it seemed too obvious didn't it it was all yeah. like if we were going to do the world cup podcast and we're two english supporting very you know quite we're both into the national game <laughs> and we get very excited when, when England squads get announced. It seemed a bit too obvious to go straight in, but 
we got round to it eventually. <laughs> yeah, we're here and we can now go two-footed into it. Yeah. Um, as always, this season we are brought to you by the good people at Zico Ball. Uh, it's the home of quality football writing on the internet and there's all sorts of different articles from tactical analysis of teams, looking at transfers, individual players, historical stories and much, much more. Um, as we have done all throughout this season, we've picked out a couple of articles of notes to recommend for you to go and check out. My choice this week is Dan Woffenden's piece about Martin Odegaard. Um, I've had, I've learned how to pronounce the name properly. I think it's Odegaard. Uh, I don't think no, I there's, yeah, the there's no D, no D on yeah. the end. Yeah, uh, and, and what he can bring to Arsenal. Um, he's obviously just joined there on loan. I think it, he's a fascinating player for me because you know when it was like you know as a 14 year old getting scouted and signed by Real Madrid, you sit there and go, mm, okay. Is he ever actually going to get a game? And he's now, what, 21? He's had a few loan spells. He did absolute bits at Real Sociedad last year. And I think him sort of naturally progressing and going and playing football at bigger and better clubs, etc. I don't know whether you would call Real Sociedad, a, uh, you know, or Arsenal a bigger bigger and better club than Real Sociedad at the minute. But yeah. um, <laughs> Burn. <laughs> but I'm just really interested to see what he could do. So I think it was a really interesting piece looking at, uh, at an interesting player. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does as well. Like he's someone that has been in the public eye since about what 2015, 16, mm. when uh, say he signed for Madrid at a young age. And I did see a graphic yesterday where we were recording this the day after Manchester United played Arsenal. And I think it was on Norwegian telly. There was a public vote for man of the match and Martin Odegaard came second despite spending the majority of the game on the bench so, so he still managed to get second it was like 29% of the vote and he was mm. still on the bench at that point so yeah it'd be interesting to see what he does um I've picked out this week I've gone a little bit off piste in terms of what I normally read and I've actually gone for like um more of a tactical analysis piece because Ooh, uh. I'm normally more about the narrative but this one actually just piqued my interest because of the way that this season has gone so I've gone for mm. Uh, Rob Hemingway, uh, Rob Hemingway's piece on like set piece analysis in the Premier League, and the okay. fact that this has been such a strange season of football and mm. kind of um, fitness and just lethargy around sort of the players' limbs, I think are going to be a big factor in who finishes where. And this is just mm. an analysis of how important set pieces have been this year and who are the sort of um, the most important players when it comes to set pieces. No surprise that James Ward-Prowse comes out on top. So yeah. Cool. So today, as we mentioned, we're talking about uh, England at World Cup 66. So, you know, this is England's only World Cup win, as we are so often reminded of. It is a home World Cup. And I suppose there's many factors why we wanted to talk about this story. Obviously, England winning the World Cup as, you know, two English guys talking about the World Cup. You know, you had to get to it eventually, I suppose. But it's the the pinnacle you know, like the zenith of English football internationally and, and mm -hmm. maybe even like ever, like even in the club side, you know, this this is the, the biggest thing. And it's the stick that we use to beat other England teams with, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately it is. <laughs> um, I think that one of the one of the things that I kind of noted going into this podcast is just we've touched on England sort of pre this tournament in other episodes like we we touched on them getting absolutely tonked by Hungary in the 50s and this is it's quite a big turnaround for the England national team to win this tournament I think because like as a nation and as a football associate, association 
in like the 30s from 40s when the, when the World Cup started to become a thing and it started to mm. kind of teams from all over the world would fly into or not fly into even they would get the boat into Uruguay the FA were fueled by such extreme hubris that for years England just didn't bother to travel to these competitions mm. they thought that like the real football that was worth playing was sort of the home nations championship so then they finally do compete in this kind of brief sojourn in Brazil in the summer of 1950 and they get eliminated after just three games in the group it proves that they're just the national setup isn't isn't what the English FA think it is really mm. and then then there's then there's that tonking before the 1954 World Cup twice at the hands of Hungary. Yeah. And so to kind of go to go from being so full of themselves pre 1940s, sort of 40s, 50s to being so crushingly humbled and then to reach the kind of top of the, the mountain, the top of the world again in such quick succession is actually I think it's quite an achievement to sort of go through such a high peak and trough within a space of about 20 years. Absolutely. And I think that when we get into it, a large part of that is the methods and approach of of you know Alf Ramsey Sir Alf Ramsey and 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 what he sort of drilled into the players but I think as a story you know England winning the World Cup in 1966 what's interesting for me is that it's something that's kind of like not just in football culture it's something that's like permanently interweaved into like the fabric of this entire country yeah and the fabric of football in this country to a point where we don't remember or talk about the players or, you know, the route to the final or even the final itself or even the goals. We just talk about, oh, we won a World Cup a bunch of years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, you might sit there and go, who was the right back or who did we beat in the quarterfinal? And so 99 times out of 100 people will go, I have no idea. But they know that we won the World Cup. Mm. So digging into like how we got there, is useful and interesting for me personally to just sort of like learn your heritage you know from yeah. a fo- footballing perspective and pay a bit of respect to to what no other england team has be- ever been able to do since done before yeah. or done since yeah definitely there's there's, there's there's sort of players and results during this kind of during this run to the to the final and eventually winning it that i just i had either no memory of or no knowledge of going into this there's sort of the mm. player names that come up who were on the score sheet more than once and it's like who okay so who was that yeah and yet this is supposed to be the biggest achievement of of this you know this, the one of the biggest sporting achievement this nation has ever achieved mm. and yet there are things that are just kind of rubbed from memory i guess or just aren't talked about as much so it was really interesting to go to like go over it with kind of a fine tooth comb like we do in most of these episodes and just learn things that we <laughs> just didn't know going into it Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we, we dig out some sort of like fun facts and, you know, interesting sort of, um, you know, the sort of stuff that you would hear, you know, you can use down the pub when we're allowed to go to them again uh, and the sort of things that you might hear on, you know, QI or whatever. So obviously England hosted the World Cup. Um, England were chosen over rival bids from West Germany and Spain. And interestingly enough, this is the first tournament to be held in a country that was directly affected by World War Two, as the fir- as the four previous tournaments were either held in countries out of war theatres or in like neutral countries. So oh, okay. it, it's quite quite a sort of poignant moment for the the tournament as well to sort of you know come back to a European country that had been directly sort of involved and affected by by World War Two. Um, and in terms of sort of like some some fun facts. Um, there's some really weird stuff that went on with this tournament, I think. Um, 
including the fact that only one of the quarterfinals was shown on TV. Which is an interesting choice, considering, you know, this. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, yeah, why they were all broadcast at one time, weren't they? All the quarterfinals, yeah, like, all broad, all, all not all broadcast, sorry, all played at three p.m. on yeah. one day. Yeah, they all kicked off at three on the Saturday afternoon, but the BBC and ITV both showed the England v Argentina game and then highlights of the others. And when <laughs> you think of that now, it, it, it's wild because like now you watch World Cup and every single game is broadcast. You know, yeah. on you know different broadcasters or whatever, but every single game you could you can technically watch. I could go on to YouTube or Footballia or whatever, and I could watch every single minute of the 2014 World Cup if I wanted to. Every single kick of the ball I could go and watch. Whereas in '66, only one you know the England Argentina game was the only quarterfinal shown on TV, which is really strange. The other thing I found, um, and it's. It's a bigger story. I mean, it could be a podcast just in itself. Is is around the African team boycott? Um, yeah. Had, so what? So what was this all about then? So basically, you had thirty-one African nations boycott the tournament to protest uh, a FIFA ruling in nineteen sixty-four that basically said that African teams would so you know in, in to qualify they would have to go into a playoff with Asian teams in order to qualify for the World Cup, and CAF. Um, the African, um, you know, basically version of UEFA, um, they felt that winning their zone was enough in itself to merit qualification. So, say Zambia finished, you know, the best of all of the African teams, that that would be enough to qualify. And FIFA said, no, whoever finishes top of your qualification would have to go up against someone from, you know, the the uh, Asia Pacific region, so Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan, whatever. Um, CAF basically felt that the rep- that representation of African nations was unfair and they demanded that FIFA guarantee at least one African nation a spot. Which is um, an unreasonable demand, right? <laughs> let's yeah. just let's just get that out in the open. It's not an unreasonable demand. If this is called it's 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 called the World Cup for a reason. You should have at least one representative from every major continent on mm. on the planet. So it doesn't it's not an unreasonable demand for CAF to say, look, we want at least one spot guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, the other thing as well that they were really unhappy with was that South Africa was readmitted to FIFA in 1963 despite the fact that CAF had expelled them due to the apartheid regime. So you've got CAF saying, no, we don't want South Africa as part of us because of apartheid, and FIFA are like, no, chill, don't worry about it, come on in. Mm. And that just, it caused a lot of ructions, and you've got all of these various sort of narratives and stories going on with you know the qualification for african nations and then this situation with south africa so you know obviously now you have the you know these big sort of know, 48 it's probably going to be 60 team world cups and all this sort of stuff you know it's, <laughs> yeah, it's expanding all the time um and whereas in this this one you've got you know 31 nations saying no nah, not interested and that that's big yeah that's 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 like that's quite a black cloud to hang over this world cup really isn't it i mm. think yeah and the the last sort of like weird incident or sort of like fact i found around this tournament was around did you ever read about the trophy incident when the trophy was stolen <laughs> pickles the duck yeah, yeah. so the, this is is it's something it's kind of one of those like urban it's, it's not a legend obviously it's a true story but it's one of those things that when people talk about the 66 world cup it comes up quite a lot and this um 
this year around like I think well around Christmas and New Year they normally do that big fat quiz of the year on Channel Four, right? And they mm. did they did one called the Big Fat Quiz of Everything, and me and my wife sat down to sort of compete against each other. And you know the way they do that, um, they get the primary school kids to act out a scenario. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but Mitchell Book Primary, so they had to act out this this whole World Cup trophy being stolen and then being found by a dog. And so I'm sat there like knowing that that Claire doesn't really that won't know much of the story and so I just mm. say the word pickles the dog to try and make <laughs> it seem like I know what's going on thinking that she won't understand that that's what I thought I tried to preempt the question basically yeah and the question would be oh what what are they what kind of play are they enacting here but then the question turned out to be what was the dog's name and I <laughs> just completely given away the question and Claire goes oh it's called pickles wasn't it I was like oh, for fuck's sake so I was trying to be really smart and completely gave away the question so yeah it's a nice little um anecdote that runs alongside this world cup really the trophy actually being stolen and then found in a bush by a dog <laughs> yeah and uh, what i equally loved about this story was that the fa were so concerned that it wouldn't get found that they had to like commission a replica to be made just in case it wasn't recovered in time or at oh, all okay and it's 3d just like, printed another jewels remade trophy it just <laughs> it just feels like the most british thing in the world oh um thanks for giving us the world cup um sorry fellas but we've we've lost the trophy mm. so we're making another one out of you know paper mache and gold spray paint and hopefully that'll be that'll be okay just in case and <laughs> it's just ridiculous but you know shout out that dog yeah well done for finding it <laughs> saving the day <laughs> so the qualified teams for the 1966 World Cup. So you had the um, South American teams. You had Brazil, who qualified as 1962 winners, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. In Europe, you had um, England qualifies hosts, Hungary, Soviet Union, and West Germany. Uh, the area that they call Latin Europe. So this is just this is what the the qualif- qualified teams were listed as. So Latin mm-hmm. Europe was France, Portugal, Spain, and Italy. And the rest of the world region was Bulgaria, North Korea, Mexico, and Switzerland. That's a really odd grouping of teams, the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's, yeah. And I think f- for me as well, when I when I saw the, um, I'm sure it's something that we'll cover in a, a separate episode, I, I'm sure. But when I saw Mexico and the rest of the world, I was like, oh, they didn't get out of the groups then. <laughs> It's this ongoing, you know, Mexico yeah. not going very far in World Never Cups, making so. it to a quarterfinal or something. Yeah. <laughs> very rarely. But yeah, so you've got like an even sort of, you know, you've got quite a good, you know, spread of teams there. You know, you've got Hungary, obviously, that we've spoken about before. Um, Brazil, the, the winners. West Germany, always a strong side. You know, historically in the World Cup, Argentina and Uruguay have been strong in this tournament. Um, you know, the European powerhouses of France, Spain, and Italy. I, I, you know, on paper, it's a it's a good looking tournament. Yeah, it's, there's there's at least one kind of at least well, there's maybe at least two sort of bona fide giants in every group, mm. isn't there? So, which is that's kind of what you want to see from any World Cup tournament. Yeah, uh, the the venues as well were quite interesting. Um, not just because of like the venues that were selected, but how many of them are sort of still used today that are still around, that are still used as Premier League mm. and Championship Stadia. But also, you'll notice when we talk about the games, obviously we're focusing specifically on England. England basically played all of their games at, at Wembley, um, pretty much. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the other 
teams have to travel all around the country. So in London, it, the stadiums were Wembley and White City Stadium, which was home to um, your QPR in the early 60s. Um, nice little area, White City. Yeah. Uh, Manchester's Old Trafford, Birmingham Villa Park, Liverpool Goodison Park, Sheffield Hillsborough Stadium, Sunderland Roker Park and Middlesbrough's Ayrson Park. So a lot of, you know, I think it's only White City Stadium doesn't exist anymore and neither does Roker Park or Ayrson Park. But all the others are still like Old Trafford, Villa Park, Goodison Park. Those are Premier League grounds now. Yeah, still around today. Obviously, Wembley's been replaced. I think one of the things that one what something that I read about during the research for this is that teams were around, sort of dotted. Some of the nations were dotted around the country, and we spoke about I think the Soviet Union being based up in the northeast. And mm. it seemed that that there was a a, a great article. Um, I think it was I think it was in the Guardian where they went back and tried to find. They matched up photographs from the '66 World Cup with sort of like a now and then and they tried Mm. to find stories of people that are around in these areas so people from Sunderland at the time who sort of took on Sunderland in Middlesbrough in the northeast that sort of took on this kind of fandom for for teams like North Koreans and the Soviet Union because that's where they were based and they tried Mm. to find the people and sort of interview them again today and it seemed like the 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 nations and the teams that were based in these kind of rural like away from London Mm the population around there just really took to them and, and, and just enjoyed having them around training in local parks. And it's yeah. like the, that the country really sort of rallied around other teams, not just England as well, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah, I think the thing that sort of rankled me a little bit is it's supposed to be an English World Cup and you basically keep the national team entirely London-centric. And it's sort of like... Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think it would have been nice... Things- would have been nice to play like a game in Liverpool or something just to give more people the opportunity to come and watch the team. Yeah, that's what I like about what the FA are doing these days because they, they stuck to... When the new Wembley was built, they, they England games were all played at Wembley. Yeah. Um, in between the old one being knocked down and the new one being built, England kind of travelled around. They played at Old Trafford. They played at the Stadium of Light. They sort of played at Anfield. And and now the England team are starting to travel again. Like before the 2018 World Cup, I think they played at Ellen Roads. Um, they they played at the King Power in Leicester. It's about mm. taking that national team around the country and getting different audiences, just giving them a chance to to see those 11 players with three lines on the shirt on the pitch. Like I think that's that's important rather than just keeping it very you know like you say London centric at Wembley where tickets are really expensive and a burger mm. and a beer is like 15 quid. So <laughs> yeah, I, I like the fact that they travel around yeah. again. No, I agree. I think it's so important that more people get exposed to the national team and and you know fall in love with it and everything, yeah. especially especially kids. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. So being able to take the national team on the road and put it in front of more people is is only a good thing. And it, it just mm. felt like a bit of a shame. Like you know, the only time that England's hosted the World Cup, regardless of results, you know, we it's the only time that we've ever hosted it. We hosted Euro '96 as well, and they did a better job of that, but. 66 World Cup, it's like you could have played one game like at Villa Park or something. I mean, <laughs> it just it just frustrates me. It's like you say, yeah. In in recent years they've they've played, you know, all over. I think they actually played uh, I'm based in Southampton, um and they played um at <clears throat> St Fairies. So uh <laughs> And and you know, I just thought my girlfriend jokingly said, "Oh, I bet you wouldn't go because it's St Mary's," and I was like, "Yeah, but I wouldn't be going to watch Southampton, would I?" So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just thought it was a good thing that they were like coming to all these different places, and you you saw people 
in in the city get excited at the fact that England were here and it's still such a big draw it's this still like slightly magical ethereal type thing that you know oh the England team are here and it's it means a lot and I don't think at times the FA are probably cottoning on to it a bit more but I don't think they fully appreciate how much it means to people but it's important really important so let's go on to the England team so you know, we talked in, early on about some of the sort of key names, names that you hear banded about all the time. And there are some, you know, big sort of key names and everything in there. Um, the, the Charlton brothers that we've talked about before, Jack Charlton of Leeds United, 31 years old when, when this um, tournament kicks off. His younger brother, Bobby Charlton, Manchester United, 28 years old when this um, tournament kicks off. And then you've got the West Ham lads in, in Bobby Moore, um, he's 25. Uh, he's the captain, and and Jeff Hurst, who's who's 24, you know, playing at West Ham as well. So these are household sort of like iconic names now, um, but but you know, at the time they were just lads playing for teams around the country, I suppose. I think it's quite important that there was existing relationships built between some of the members of the squad. Like you've mentioned, the kind of the West Ham lads, the West Ham. I actually thought before going into this that they had more like more players from West Ham than they did. There's only actually three. There's Bobby mm. Moore, there's Jeff Hurst, and then there's Martin Peters. And the, yeah. the way that it's talked about is as if kind of West Ham won the World Cup. And obviously <laughs> Bobby Moore is the captain and Jeff Hurst is the sort of hat-trick score in the final. So you, you could say that. But I thought that the spine was made up a little bit more. Maybe there was sort of five or six players, but there's only actually three. Mm. But there's obviously there's already an existing relationship between those three players who all are in the starting lineup for the final. And then also the relationship between Jack and Bobby Charlton is something that we kind of touched on in the Jack Charlton's Ireland episode. Absolutely. Although it's a very strained relationship, they they know each other extremely well. They know how to play together, um, Mm. obviously grew up together. So I think that's you, you can't really underestimate just how important that is to kind of have these existing relationships within a national setup like in terms of going on to to win the whole thing i think that plays a really key part yeah and there's a lot that england have sort of learned from in that in in the in the past where they've done things like um oh you know they call up loads of players from manchester united and chelsea but then they all just stick in their own clicks yeah very clicky yeah Um, whereas whereas now it's you know they're trying to you know have more club atmosphere yeah yeah exactly yeah um so i think they've they've sort of looked at what's worked for them in the past and gone oh we need more of that because you know we we talk about england's golden generation and what happened in 98 and 2002 and you know we talked about that in detail when we looked at the you know looking at sven's england and i think that there's a lot of errors um and arrogance and naivety and just simple things that were handled wrong because they approached the setup in the wrong way. And I actually read an interview with um, the former Fulham and Portsmouth midfielder, Sean Davis, who okay. he only had one call up for England, but basically in this interview, he's talking about how he absolutely hated it. He said, when I was called up for England, you know, first and only call up, you know, you're excited because you're going to go and represent your country. He says, you arrive and nobody talks to you. Everyone's just talking to their teammates. And he was like, I think he was playing for Fulham at the time. And he was like, well, there's no one Fulham player there. So there's no one for me to talk to. 
So you've got all the Manchester United players sticking together. You've got all of the Arsenal players sticking together, all the Chelsea players sticking together. And poor old Sean Davis has just sort of sat there on his own, like <laughs> feeling frozen out. No one coming over, oh, you know, welcome to the team. Great to have you here. You know, let's, yeah. let's you know, get to know each other or whatever, which they're obviously trying to do a lot more now, you know, welcoming people into the England fold. Um, and you just sort of see this just total disconnect and just, poor you know everyone looks at the players you know back then and we're like oh you know surely they should have won something and it's like yeah but when you find out what was going on behind the scenes it's no bloody surprise yeah there's it's clearly more into it than just having the 11 best players on the pitch there's got to be some kind of chemistry mm. involved and i think that's what this squad kind of gets right absolutely there's a really interesting story about jeff hurst as well so he originally wasn't even going to be going to the world cup he right. had to ask and convince Alf Ramsey to include him in his 22-man squad. And the original plan for the tournament was that Jimmy Greaves and Roger Hunt were going to be the leading strikers for the team. Yeah. Um, and there was obviously no substitutes back then. So Hurst was basically a spectator for the early games of the tournament. And when Jimmy Greaves suffers an injury against France, so he is out of the quarterfinal with Argentina, he basically had no choice but to turn to Jeff Hurst. And it's this weird sliding doors moment of if yeah. Jimmy Greaves had never got injured, would England have won the World Cup? Yeah, definitely. That's why. That's one of the things I noted that that he just uh, Jeff Hurst doesn't appear in the first three games. Um, so I thought that was quite surprising, and yeah, he, he comes into it in the quarterfinals and and never leaves the team again. So mm. yeah, it's one of those things. I think if you're if you're Jimmy, there, there's footage of Jimmy Greaves after the after the final victory, and he's one of the first people to sort of enter the pitch <coughs> oh he's yeah he's, he's in a full suit he's um mm. obviously I, I i think i don't know what your mental state would be because in that position you've just had to watch uh essentially as a spectator watch all of your you know the the, the 11 that you should have been in win mm. the world cup and he's one of the first people on the pitch sort of clapping and cheering and congratulating the boys so clearly a great teammate but yeah what could have been eh he didn't do a John Terry and get changed into the strip <laughs> and run out. He wasn't full kit, no. <laughs> um, no. So we'll touch a little bit on to Alf Ramsey as well, because I think, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that the shift from you know getting battered by Hungary to then swinging it round to to winning the World Cup is is a, is pretty seismic, and I think that Ramsey takes quite a a decent amount of credit for that. Not entirely, but he takes a decent amount of credit for it. So. When he took over as, as manager, he, he basically, you know, from, uh, I think it was Walter Winterbottom, I think was yeah, the previous manager. Yep. And he had basically said, right, this is how you did it before. This is how I want to do it. He demanded complete control over squad selections. Um, whereas previously, Winterbottom had just sort of managed the team, but there was like a selections committee that were, would choose who was called up. Um, and Ramsey's appointment and basically him appropriating all of these different responsibilities and everything led to him being referred to as England's first proper manager because yeah. he he was like, no, if this is going to work, I have to train them, I have to choose them, I have to see what works, you have to let me do this. And the FA and their limited wisdom, I'm not going to say infinite wisdom because they've made plenty of cock-ups <laughs> since, but uh, you know they said, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. And on his appointment, Ramsey caused a bit of a stir when he said, when England were, you know, basically selected as hosting the 66 World Cup, he said, oh yeah, we're going to win that. Which he is was, a big call, a huge, huge oof, call. Yeah. 
there's um, there's there's something that goes into the whole kind of the Ralph Ramsey becoming the first sort of professional manager of England. Like there's mm. there's clearly a way that the FA had been doing things up to a point. Selections were done by committee and you don't give the manager like one hundred percent kind of power. And then when Alf Ramsey comes in, he's like, Okay, look, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need sort of full control here in order mm. to do my best work. Like there's there's stories of that happening in in other in other sports and in other countries where they like the the um, association would just turn around and say, look, that's not the way we do things. Either you come in under our terms, you don't come in at all. But the FA to actually turn around and say, look, okay, this is if if you want full control, you've got it. Just make sure you know, <laughs> just just make sure we win it at the end of it, so we look like a success. Mm. And it, it clearly worked. And it's got to be like just some kudos given to the FA there for for changing tactics and just kind of yeah for for giving him free reign essentially because he's the one that's if you're going to select by committee like he's essentially he's the ones that's got to coach them and then manage these players at the end mm. if you're if you're picking by committee and there's someone in if there's someone in there that Ramsey doesn't want that's going to cause a lot of friction between him and the FA and the playing squad so you know just give I think if you if you give the manager kind of free reign and let him pick the players he wants it can only lead to like to good things and there's still plenty of countries and even club sides that still do this sort of like selection by committee sort of thing so in the national team there are uh, national sides you know that that sort of game there there are plenty of countries that still do selection by committee varying successes and you know the manager is seen as a coach rather than like a you know you you choose who gets called up yeah and then it's very common in the club game for transfers to be dictated by committee and you know even Mm. Jürgen, Jürgen Klopp has said you know you know, I, I don't choose who gets signed. I can say I prefer this one over this one, but ultimately it's out of my hands. Famously, Tottenham, all, it's always done by, by committee. It's, it's, you know, you've got, you know, directors of football and, you know, even um, uh, Levy himself still, you know, very involved in, in who gets signed and, and why and for how much money and everything. And and the coach just coaches them. You know, there's, there's still, there's plenty of teams that sort of, split split the role yeah split um, the duties in half yeah and there's there's pros and cons to, to both i suppose because i know that um i think it was shortly after alex ferguson retired he basically said oh you know um manage, management's changed and it, it doesn't it doesn't work in the same way that i used to do it in the sense of i choose the players that we sign i then choose the players that play i manage everything he was like doesn't doesn't work like that anymore you have directors of football and the, the manager is more of a head coach type figure and all of this sort of stuff so yeah sometimes it gets you a van Destroy, sometimes it gets you a jemba jemba so <laughs> <laughs> so in, in group one of the uh 1966 world cup england are drawn against uruguay mexico and france they start the tournament in front of 87,000 people at wembley Drawing nil nil with Uruguay. There's not really yeah. much to say about that. <laughs> a is dour there? opening game for England. Where have we heard that before? Um, mm. There's a there was there was there's not much to say about the 90 minutes itself. Really, is that it's it's a, you know Uruguay kind of suffocate England perfectly. Um, there, I did read that the attendance at 87,000 was actually seen as a real disappointment because it's the opening game. Yeah, that's 30,000 fewer than than were at the 66 FA Cup final just a few months earlier. So over 100,000 watched Everton beat Sheffield Wednesday 3-2 and yet only 87 can can turn up to watch England's opening game of the World Cup and 
what I noticed that England's front line for the opening game is is completely different to how it shapes up for the in the final. So there's a lot of mm. tinkering and changes that happen throughout this tournament where Ramsey's kind of trying to to figure out his, his just the winning formulation essentially. Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of interviews with the squad after the game that just just suggested they were just extremely disappointed and disheartened with this nil nil performance and that. Some of them thought, oh, okay, maybe it's actually going to be harder to win a home World Cup than they thought, which is quite a weird mindset to go in with. Like, we're at home. It might not be too bad, to be fair. And then to get mm. suffocated and frustrated to a nil-nil draw in your opening game, I think it, it might have lit the fire up them a little bit. Yeah, because um, when you go on to the next game, it, it definitely feels like there has been a a shift in attitude and a shift in approach and yeah you know beating mexico 2-0 poor old mexico in front of 92,000 people at wembley much bigger attendance mm-hmm. you know better you know obviously better end result um it's two points for a win here so you know that puts england on three points um it just it feels like the world cup really starts for england with this mexico performance yeah there's there's two kind of points to this game i think which which show just the like the yeah the, the change in in mental attitudes for this game. I think uh, I read that after um after game after the opening sort of nil nil draw. So Ralph Ramsey took the squad to to Pinewood Studios to go and watch a James Bond film. So nice. <laughs> just to kind of chill them out. So they all went for like half a lager and just a a chit chat and to watch James Bond and just to calm themselves down. Yeah. And he also starts to this is where he starts to tinker with his lineup as well. I think I I, I saw that Terry Payne started up front in place of John Connolly in this one. So. And I also suggested that Martin Peters started this game ahead of Alan Ball, but I actually read contract like contradicting match reports mm. here, so I'm not too sure on that one. But Ramsey starts to tinker with stuff, and then in the 37th minute, it's still nil nil. This is this is Bobby Charlton's first kind of like Thanos moment where he's like, "Fine, I'll do it myself," and it's just a thunderous <laughs> yeah. effort from like 25 yards out that puts England into the lead. I think it just settles all the nerves because now mm. they've scored they've scored their first goal. They've heard the cheers of the home crowd. And they're like, "Right, okay, maybe like." let's really kick on now the first game was mm. awful let's put it behind us and let's you know let's just get things on a roll here yeah and it's, it's Roger Hunt makes it 2-0 after 75 minutes so you sort of like midway through the, the second half um, to, to sort of seal the game but you, you feel like yeah you, you feel like the the confidence is rising in this team and certainly for Roger Hunt when you sort of see you know his name crops up a few times he's sort of like he's got one he's got taste for it yeah um and then you go against come up against France in the final group game in front of 98,000 people at Wembley so you know more and more people trickling in because they're seeing that it's working it's another 2-0 win so you know finishing the group without even conceding a goal not bad 98,000 people at Wembley Really weird as well, right? So in the Mexico game, Bobby Charlton, 37 minutes, Roger Hunt, 75 minutes. The yeah. game against France, Roger Hunt, 38 <laughs> minutes, Roger Hunt, 75 minutes. Yeah, I know. So it's I was like thinking a carbon copy. So strange in terms of, obviously the first half an hour of games, they're sort of trying to work out the opposition and try and break them down. And it just takes, just after sort of 36, 37 minutes, someone just goes, right, okay, here we go. <laughs> mm. I'll, I'll kick this off then, shall I? And then they seal it with 15 minutes left. It was, yeah, almost identical to the first game. There's... Uh, one of the major talking points of this game was was um, Nobby Styles' tackle on Jack Seymour, which was supposedly, it was, apparently this was the talk of the game afterwards. And I watched the tackle a few times. There's very grainy footage of it. Yeah. And Styles was well known for being 
I, I think it's probably unfair to call him a hatchet man, but he was a very clumsy <laughs> tackler and he crashes through the back of Simon, who mm. who does play on later in the tournament, but looks in absolute agony. Um, yeah. It's yeah, a bone breaker. A, yeah, there's 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 um, an interview with Nobby Styles uh, filmed fairly recently. I think it was filmed around 2006, and he admitted that it was an awful tackle. And he was <laughs> he was warned by the FA afterwards about his conduct on the pitch. I think he tried to calm down afterwards. But Styles' role in the team was essentially just to break up play and keep some players, uh, the opposition star man, quiet. Um, I mean, I mean, you've got Nobby, <laughs> and Nobby Styles exactly and that. Nobby Styles and Jack Charlton just absolutely destroying anything that comes near them. It's yeah. brilliant. It's um, yeah, it's a so yeah, it's it's not the best tackle in the world. <laughs> so going through from the group, um, obviously there's no sort of round of sixteen uh, with this small number of teams, so they go straight to the quarterfinal versus Argentina. Now, it's the game against France where Jimmy Greaves gashes his leg and and he's injured, he he's out and obviously no substitutions. So for for you know, for this game, Jeff Hurst comes in. So ninety thousand people at Wembley. Weird that England have got to a quarter final and less people turn up against you know, in this game rather than the France game, but there we go. Um Jeff Hurst comes in for, for Jimmy Greaves, um and it's and it's him who, who gets the goal. Um, against Argentina with a, a near post header. Did was there anything in particular that you uh, of note that you wanted to to highlight on this game? This game, I think, this is one of the key games in the tournament, just purely because of the storylines around it. Like, mm. there's obviously, yeah, Jeff Hurst comes into the team for the first time, and he's just he becomes this mainstay from here on out. He plays the next three games and stars in each one of them. Um, there's when I was looking I was looking into Jimmy Greaves as well just because I want like I kind of know about I know I know who's a prolific goal scorer at club level but he didn't score in this world cup Mm. and I started to I found like a really um someone had picked apart his autobiography and there's a really like there's there's an excellent quote about pre-match nutrition and stuff and there's this is one of the things that we always kind of tend to pick out from these podcasts is how things have Mm. changed over the years and Jimmy Greaves described one of his sort of pre-match rituals as uh, heading off to Moody's, uh, Moody's Cafe in Canning Town, where we would order our pre-match meal of a roast beef and Yorkshire with all the trimmings, or pie and mash, followed by black uh, blackcurrant crumble and custard. Like <laughs> that's completely changed compared to what Wenger's Arsenal started to eat in the in the mid nineties. There, there's so something there's something very uh, Jamie Vardy at Fleetwood Town, you know, yeah. having having a few Red Bulls before playing about that, isn't there? But to think that Jimmy Greaves was eating that pre-game and then scoring a hat trick for Spurs, like <laughs> you'd love to see what he was, what he was like now, like, if if he was on like proper nutrition. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then I also noted that just for this game, I think I I uh, read an interview with George Cohen as well, who is the right back, and he said he says that this is where they they kind of switched to like a four four two formation from the four three three, which yeah. again just shows that Ramsey's like he, he's tinkering with things, he's trying to find this formula that just makes England the best they could possibly be. Mm. Um, and I mean, this game is it's it's a one nil win, but it's it's a really niggly affair. Like it's, uh, I think there's there's a lot of interviews with the squad since '66 that just describe the Argentinians as things like annoying and dirty and not mm. playing in the spirit of the game. And I think um, beforehand, Sir Ralph Ramsey had told his players, "Look, just ignore all these kind of underhand tactics of the Argentinians. Mm. Like just walk away." If the referee blows his whistle, like you just don't get involved in any of these kind of off the ball melees, and I think that's what they tried to do. Um, but then there's there's also another article that I read that, on the other hand, sort of in 
there's this feeling in South America that throughout this tournament, it was just kind of completely against all the Latin American sides from the start. Like Pele was yes. roughed up in the groups and Brazil were eliminated early. Um, Uruguay suffered a similar fate. And then the Argentinians, they just all felt exactly the same. There's Some of them just called it a conspiracy against Latin America. And there's, this, there's a really good article... Um, it was by let me see if I can find it. there we go so it's by Simon Burton Burton in the Guardian that goes into further detail yeah. but there's a feeling of resentment about this tournament in South America that just things were against all three mm. nations from the start really yeah absolutely that's something I I dug into in a in a bit more detail and we'll sort of come back to that Simon Burton article okay. towards the end as well yeah. actually because there's there's a lot around the the legacy of this world cup and how it's viewed in in other countries you know the germans right, okay. have a particular view of it the south americans have a very negative view of it um so it's it's a really interesting thing to sort of look at you know we look at like we talked about this when we talked about italia 90 mm-hmm. england people in england view it as this beautiful tournament that you know or what could have been other people are like oh shit there was not very many <laughs> yeah. goals and the football's yeah. rubbish <laughs> each tournament is viewed through different lenses around the yeah. world and it's it's really interesting when you sort of step back from your very england centric view of the world cup um you know what might have not been very successful for us might have been brilliant for the spanish or, or the dutch yeah. or the nigerians or whatever so yeah think about how yeah. we think of 2010 maybe the, <laughs> obviously the spaniards i think are completely different about their world cup than than how we do so it's all it depends yeah. on what eyes you're viewing it through um, the only other thing of note in this in this game really was that um, Antonio Ratti was was sent off after just half an hour, and I read the official reason was was violence of the tongue, which I love. Like I've never heard that before. <laughs> um, and so yeah, they 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 hold out for about was it until about eighty minutes? Is it seventy eight and eighty minutes? Um, Something like that. Yeah, seventy eight minutes. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's kind of a there's a scuffle at the final whistle. Um, I did see that <laughs> there's there's clips of um, Alf Ramsey not allowing George Cohen to swap shirts with the Argentinian. With his Argentinian counterpart, like he tries to swap shirts yeah. at the end, and Ramsey's like, "No, give it back." And the video <laughs> footage is great because you, you, you can't. I can't quite make out who the Argentinian player is, but he tries to swap shirts with Cohen. Ramsey gets in the middle of it. He's obviously not allowed to swap shirts, so this Argentinian just just walks over to the next player and just swap shirts with him. <laughs> so he's like <laughs> on to the next one immediately. And then, like after the game, Ram Ramsey's reprimanded for the like by the FA for some of the comments that he makes. I think there's there's mm-hmm. one quote from after the game where he just says, "We still have to produce our best." And this is not possible until we meet the right sort of opponents. And that is a team that comes out to play football and not act as animals, um, which okay. is quite scything, really, isn't yeah, it? It's quite a yeah. cutting remark. Yeah, but I, th- I suppose I, I, I quite like what, what you mentioned about sort of Alf Ramsey prepping the players and sort of saying, you know, don't don't react, don't, um, you know, you know, follow the referee's whistle and all this sort of stuff because your natural reaction would be if someone's sort of getting these niggly tackles in and you know we've talked about this when we talked about the Maradona episode yeah there's a a whole ethos in certainly in Argentinian football of seeing what you can get away with oh yeah playing fast and loose with the rules as much as possible yeah yeah it's sort of written into the national footballing psyche of you know what can you get away with what can you what can you steal sort of thing um there's this sort of cheeky you know when when the referee is not looking kind of um attitude so when you come up against england who are very much well we play the game the proper way and everyone should play yeah. the proper way it's like well mm. that's not how the world works no. so you have to prepare 
to react to different you know ways of playing and attitudes and all of that sort of thing shows real so, management as well i think you can mm. i mean some some people can set up a team perfectly tactically but it sometimes it's just about those little notes also going into the just watch out for this watch out for that not tactical instructions just instructions like around sort of the mental behaviors and stuff just make sure that you're not getting involved with things you don't need to get involved in if someone's got that in their head going into the game then hopefully that you, they'll be all the better for it so i think it just shows that he's also looking at other elements of you know just kind of man management yeah so the knockout sorry knockout stages we're already talking about the knockout stages we're going to talk about the semi-final next um so bear with me one second i just want to get up some information in in addition about that so the semi-final against portugal this is the one that for me felt like today like the toughest challenge for england okay 94,000 people at Wembley. Jeff Hurst starts again, but it's really Bobby Charlton who shines in this game. Yeah. Um, he's the one who gets both of England's goals on 30 minutes and 80 minutes. Um, and they concede a penalty. You say, you know, the legendary um, Portuguese, I think he's playing as a shadow striker in this game. Um, Eusebio scores a penalty on 82 minutes. Um, but th- this is the the toughest one for me on you know on paper and when you look at footage and when you read everything around it this is the the toughest game so far um but yeah it's 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 another one of those like bobby charlton going i'll I'll do this putting the team on his back yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's another thanos game for for bobby charlton this is like looking at the um just the 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 team selection and this it's an unchanged 11 from the last game and so this is where it looks like alf ramsey's kind of settled on his kind of ideal formula, right? Mm. Like the perfectly, his perfectly balanced side. Because if you go back through the results so far, we've got 0-0, 2-0, 2-0, 1-0. So they've not conceded a single goal. And mm. the front two of Hurst and Hunt have both found the score sheet, combining for four goals in four games. So you're, you're the, like, the strikers are, are finding the back of the net. The defence are as solid as a rock. They're not letting anything in. And one thing I noted that strangely, up until recording this episode and researching this episode, like there's only one name on the team sheet that I'd never heard of. And that was Roger Hunt. So Jeff, yeah. her striking partner, like I'd never heard of him before. I'd know, I, I knew the names of every other, I couldn't list them off the top of my head. But when I was going through the team, I was like, yep, heard of him, heard of him, heard of him. And you get to Roger Hunt and I'm like, no, I've I'd never actually heard of him before. So it's and strange it, that he scored the most in the groups yeah. and yet I'd not, I'd not heard that name before. Was there anyone See, for you that like that? Um, Roger Hunt was one and only because like, when I actually read up about him I felt a little bit embarrassed because he um, was like the club's um, he was Liverpool's club record goal scorer he scored 286 oh, okay, goals wow. in 11 years and it, it was only Ian Rush that, that sort of like beat that so right. like the man knew how to score goals yeah like clearly he's found three in the, in the group stage three in yeah. three games so yeah um, so that was that was the main because as a you know I, you know, I'm from Portsmouth. I've spent you know the vast majority of my life living on the south coast, and Alan Ball is a name that is familiar to right. Southampton fans and Portsmouth fans. You know, he played for Southampton in two separate spells. He was um, manager of Portsmouth and on the coaching staff at Portsmouth and stuff as well. So, Alan Ball, I always knew about. Um, obviously, all the other sort of names, you know, people have heard of Jack Charlton and Bobby Moore and Gordon Banks and Nobby mm-hmm. Styles and. I think yeah I I'm with you I think it was Roger Hunt was the only one that I was a little bit in the dark about and then when I sort of read up about him I was like oh shit so he was like the business until Ian Rush came about 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I I, I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. That's yeah. okay, that's we've spoke about footballing blind spots on this this podcast before, and I think that was that was one of mine that mm. I'm, I guess that I kind of hope to write at some point. Well, I kind of I'm starting to write with yeah. this with this episode. Um, I think one of the one of the other performances that in the, aside from some obviously Bobby Charlton scoring both goals, is another we've already mentioned him once before. Um, and it's the performance of of Nobby Stars throughout this yeah. game, who's just essentially employed to to man mark Eusebio around just around the field all game, not allowed to play, just to nullify Portugal's biggest threat. And there's a there's a quote from from Jack Charlton before the game, who just says he just said their team didn't worry us, but Eusebio did. Yeah. And so that's the kind of mentality of the England team. Like, like the rest of the team aren't really up to much, but this <laughs> Eusebio is the shit here. So we need yeah. to keep him quiet. And so. Yeah, Nobby Styles' performance in this game, he just follows him around, doesn't allow him to really get into the game. And it's only the penalty at the end where he, he gets himself on the score sheet. Um, Eusebio's just scored the, the previous game, I think he scored four against North Korea. So he's he just did, come off yeah. the back of this insane performance. Two penalties and two goals in a 5-3 yeah. win versus North Korea. That's like, it, yeah. He's a monster. I mean, yeah. he, in the third place playoff that you know they, they play against um, the Soviet Union, he um, scores the first goal in that game as another penalty, but it's, it's him and um, Jose Torres that are like the big threats for Portugal. But it's right. Eusebio that just dictates all the play. So being able to shut him down, and that's like where I talk about this being the big challenge. It's not so much a oh you know winning the game. It's keeping Eusebio quiet. It's like coming up against. Um, you know, remember that game that Inter Milan played against um, Barcelona. And oh, the, the the Mourinho where he where he just, where they just anti football, yeah, yeah. Where any time Messi got the ball, it was send three people to get it off of him and put him on the floor. Yeah, and doing that, everyone was like, "Oh, that's not really football." And it's like, but it's a tactic, and it mm. worked, and they won, and then they won the Champions League. So yeah. you can't really knock it too much. No, and like I say I think whilst 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 Styles is sort of keeping Portugal's style and quiet, it just gives you know a, a, arguably England's biggest name this platform to flourish which is which is Bobby Charlton he brags both of the goals mm. um the first one is it's it's Roger Hunt that kind of latches onto this long ball and finds himself kind of one-on-one with the keeper who then I think <clears throat> I think it's a shot but it kind of it's repelled off the keeper's body and it just lands at Charlton's feet on the edge of the area he just sort of strokes it home into an open net it's a fairly fortuitous mm. goal to open things up with um but it's the the second one I I really enjoyed where it, it, I think, again it's kind of Hurst this time who, who kind of hustles the, the Portuguese defence turns inside the area and just calmly lays this ball back to Charlton who's just waiting there he just fires it home doubles the lead 2-0 and that's essentially game over until <laughs> did you see the circumstances that the penalty came about in? I did not No the, the penalty's great because like I mean, it's a fairly... I mean, the effort from Eusebio is fairly straightforward. It just goes straight in. But it's the way that the the penalty comes about in hilarious circumstances because the ball's kind of lofted into the English penalty box and it's headed back across goal by by one of the Portuguese players. And Jack Charlton kind of throws his hands up, not dissimilar to Suarez <laughs> against Uruguay, <laughs> but it bounces off his hand and then straight onto the hand of Nobby Styles. So, like, if one wasn't given, the other one would have been. So it's the first goal that England conceded in the tournament and it was extremely avoidable. But yeah. if you go back and watch it, it's quite funny because the ball bounces between two hands, and then they—I think it's both both Jack Charlton and Snobby Styles are both like their shoulders just drop immediately when the whistle goes because they're like, "Oh shit, we've let them back into this with <laughs> ten minutes left." 
but fortunately for England, they they do win it and they yeah, uh, it's all go, good. They uh, go into the World Cup final at Wembley Stadium, you know, of course, in front of 96,000 people against uh, West Germany. Now, what's interesting with this is when I actually looked into around footballing rivalries, uh, you know, England sit there and always say, you know, Germany's our big rival, blah, blah, blah. Germany don't see England as a rival. They just, you know... (laughs) It's painful. uh, There's there's a a really interesting thing. I can't remember. I think it was Franz Beckenbauer. He was sort of saying about, you know, well, if Germany had won that World Cup, it would have been, okay, it's a World Cup that we won. You know, we lost it. And it's like, okay, we lost it. We move on to the next thing. It isn't like a, we have to get one back over the English or whatever. They see their big rivals as the Netherlands. It's yeah. only England that see Germany as the rival. It's like the sniffy so, little brother, aren't we? It's <laughs> just a really one-sided... <laughs> yeah, it's a really one-sided rivalry where we're like desperate for validation from the Germans. Yeah. It's really, really weird. But the lineups, I think, were interesting for this game. So England sort of line up with like a 4-4-2, but like a diamond in the midfield. So you've got Bobby right. Charlton as like an attacking midfielder. Nobby Styles playing as a defensive midfielder. And then either side of Bobby Charlton, you've got Martin Peters and Alan Ball. Yeah. And then you've got um, Roger Hunt and Jeff Hurst up front. A great so, striking partnership that's proven yeah. to be prolific already. And I think they've sort of tinkered with this to the point where they've got it really firing. So you've got you've got um, you know Bobby Moore and Jack Charlton at, at centre back. So you, you know pretty solid there. Nobby Styles is sort of like the defensive midfield destroyer, and then Bobby Charlton can just lay balls off for Hurst and Hunt, and, and you know to to get goals that way. Yeah, Germany go four two four. Right. So they've got the midfield, they've got Franz Beckenbauer and Wolfgang Overath. And then up front, they've got uh, Emmerich, Held, uh, Seeler, and Haller. It's just, it's so attacking. They're flooding forward, really, at points, aren't they? That's that's one thing that I was really surprised because Channel 4 showed this game during the summer. So that was when um, I watched the full game for the first time ever during, during last summer during lockdown. And one thing I was really surprised with was just how sort of attacking both teams yeah. were. Like they were really both going for it in the World Cup final. We've watched we've watched some World Cup finals during the recording of this podcast where they've been quite attritional affairs. No kind mm. of no one wants to lose, and yeah. then this one was just kind of both teams kind of bombing forward, trying to trying to score early. Um, there was a few really like some of the things that I picked out from the coverage around the game. There's some like quotes and some interviews and stuff with players about just how they felt going into just before kickoff. Um, and apparently on the morning of the World Cup, Ray Wilson, who was the right back, I think, um, or maybe the left back, and, and a roommate he at was the time, back. Bobby Charlton. Was he left back? Okay, so the left back and, and Bobby Charlton went clothes shopping in the morning. They just went <laughs> down. So so Charlton recalls that, that we went down the main street near Hendon. We walked down and not a lot of people knew us at all, which like when you think about it, that seems absolutely mad. Like, you imagine next summer when the final of Euro 2020 or 2021, whatever you want to call it, is held at Wembley and you've just got kind of Harry Kane and <laughs> like Deli Alley, Jordan Henderson just wandering around like Oxford Circus and stuff and no <laughs> just, one knowing who they are. Just having a wander around H&M going, I quite like this hat. Yeah, and no one really seeming to care. But there was, yeah. there's that like, I think Jeff, Jeff Hurst said, um, it felt like there were 50 million people in the stadium all cheering us on. So like the noise of the crowd around it must have been huge. Um Jack Charlton said, we left the tunnel and I looked up at the scoreboard before kickoff. It said, England nil, West Germany nil. And I thought to myself, I wonder what that will read like in an hour and a half. 
Nice. Just seemed just really. I, I love like, after the last couple of weeks. Like I think I've fallen in love with Jack Charlton probably, and the way that he just kind of yeah. thinks about things. He just seems so calm at all times. Mm. And then then there's Alan Ball who said um, the raw like explaining leaving the tunnel onto the pitch. He said the raw just exploded in your ears. I took a deep breath and I said I love this. This is for me. Like there was seemed to be a lot of people in that squad that just thrived in under this kind of environment. The, the pressure of a World Cup final in front of a home audience. They didn't shy away from it at all they seem to they seem to love being a part of it absolutely and and you know one for the listeners if you pause this podcast and go onto youtube and you search um 1966 world cup final and look for the british pathé um sort of highlights oh, like mini documentary it's where excellent all the footage <laughs> has been colorized it's all been sort of upscaled um you wish that you were there it's the just the quality this... of the footage that they got like yeah i i, I cannot believe in the tunnel how good. everything yeah mm. and yeah, like the, I mean... the the hd quality of this footage like yeah. considering how old it is how i'm just really surprised by how good the quality of the footage was considering this is from 66 yeah and it's it's one of those ones where you know you've got this this you know wembley stadium is packed there's nearly a hundred thousand people in there the noise is deafening it's a gorgeous summer's day um it's one of those ones where you just sit there and go i wish i was in that crowd it's just absolutely monstrous and i I even loved the um the scoreboards obviously it's all done uh manually so when 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 a goal scored they have to pull out the zero and put in (laughs) put in a one and all this sort of stuff someone changing it changes it over i just i loved all of it i just thought it was just brilliant there was something you know deeply just sort of uncomplicated about the whole thing you know none of this sort of you know digital advertising hoardings and you know uh, oh you know the clock is sponsored by tag hire and you know the yeah. half the, the half time is sponsored by budweiser it's just no it's it's 22 men come out and play play a game of football and you know a hundred thousand people have a good day and the you know, pleasure we'll get, like Imagine that the, the, the guy changing over the scoreboard must have been like a young Englishman, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. something akin to a ball boy, I suppose. Yeah. And can you imagine the pleasure of being able to turn it over at 101 minutes to three, England 3, West Germany 2? Or or like yeah. the England 4, Germany 2 with just a few seconds left. Being able to t- be the person that turned the score over on the big scoreboard. like Exactly. I just drink that moment in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so the, fir- the first half... Um, it's like you said you know both teams sort of set up very much wanting the win so it's it's very sort of end-to-end very sort of you know both teams coming out very attacking I think it's a fairly even game to be honest the first half it feels very very even in terms of you know attempts and you know I think Germany obviously take first blood yeah Helmut Haller scores on 12 minutes uh, Siegfried Held send, sends a cross into the English penalty area, which Ray Wilson misheads. Uh, Helmut Haller picks it up and and, and scores. It, it's it's like a it's like a combination of a few mistakes. You know, Jack Charlton uh, and Gordon Banks fail to deal with it. Um, yeah, the ball kind of goes through uh, as the as the shot goes towards the net. It kind of goes through two defenders and past Banks, doesn't it? So there's, yeah. there's more than there's ample opportunity to kind of clear the ball. I think and. The first clearance really doesn't make it out too far. They only makes it as far as, Schne- as Schnellinger, yeah. who yeah just kind of volleys it back towards goal, and then it's the it's Haller that hits it finally. And there is more than there's more than one opportunity to clear the ball completely. So yeah, it's just a bit scrappy, a bit I think. Yeah, 
but you know, I think that really sort of lights a fire under England because uh, it's that man again, Jeff Hurst, on 18 minutes who makes it one all. Um, you have Wolfgang Overath concedes a free kick. Um, Bobby Moore takes it immediately. He sort of floats across into the the area, and Jeff Jeff Hurst just sort of rises unchallenged and levels the score with a header. And it, it's just it's that that quick instinctive thinking, like what we talked about in the um, the third place playoff game in USA '94. That sort of quick yeah. thinking of going well they're still sort of settling themselves. So if we just do do this move quickly and it's just sort of like you blink and the, the ball's in the net and Jeff Hurst is running away, you know, with with his arm up. and It was a really uh, neat uh, nodded header as well. Like mm. I, quite, I, I like the finish in it. And what I quite like as well is after this, after England make it one all, they really ramp the pressure up. There's a few really good England chances that, and it's mainly good goalkeeping that keeps them out. Yes. Yeah. For me, it felt like one of those ones. But when the <laughs> there's a clip on when you watch the British Pathé footage, especially when the halftime whistle goes, the Germans are like, "Okay, cool, yeah, good, we can, you know, regroup." And England are like, "Oh, really? Yeah, we would keep playing." <laughs> yeah, they were quite enjoying themselves. And it, 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 that's a that's a good point. That sort of it was some good goalkeeping because I made a note that sort of Gordon Banks and Hans Tikovsky in both goals were showed outstanding sort of agility at, oh, gotcha. at both ends they were they were sort of equal to every shot it was it was more down to to great goalkeeping than wasteful shooting that this wasn't oh, yeah three three four four within the first half yeah yeah i mean certainly like i say england had a fair few attempts after they'd scored their goal and some of the reflex saves and that was one of the saves where the the germany keeper he, he just sort of like punches it out of the way does this sort of like diving thing where he has two fists sort of put together and he sort of like yeah jumps across goal and punches <laughs> it away and it's sort of like i mean you could have just caught it but you know whatever go for the, <laughs> go, go for the camera save you know why not treat yourself it's a world cup final uh Make the most of it so the second half Again, it sort of it kind of kind of picks up where where it leaves off, doesn't it? Yeah, it's more kind of same. kind of end end to end. Um, but it's as you get towards the end of the second half, and the thing that I noticed is that um, the Germans ever so slightly their energy levels start to drop a bit, mm. and you see England kind of get I don't know they're kind of like energized by that, just sitting there going. Oh, you you're getting a bit tired. Okay, well I can run a bit faster then, which is strange because I think going into it the Germans were sort of supposedly the the fitter, more aggressive side, but they mm. they seem to yeah they they really seem to slow. Um, and it, I don't it does... I don't know if it's if I don't know if it's something you know you know I don't know if the game against the Soviet Union in the semi final took a lot out of them, mm. um, or, or you know in the quarter final they played Uruguay and they beat them four nil. And I don't know. Perhaps it was going, coming up against two quite, you know, physical sides that they would have had to have worked very, very hard to to get results against. Perhaps that took a lot out of them. I, I don't know. There was enough. It was well. I mean, once we talk about the Martin Peters goal first, but there's also just enough energy left to score a last minute equaliser as well <laughs> normal time. So yeah, but yeah, the goal from Martin Peters first is kind of is a. It's more of a, I think, it, again, it's another defensive mistake, I suppose, isn't it? Because the mm. ball's kind of struck towards goal and it's this fluffed, like, block slash clearance thing that mm. just means the ball kind of falls to the feet of Martin Peters who just buries it with very little fuss and it makes it 2-1. But, again, it's just a, another kind of mistake that leads to, to a, so that's, I guess that's probably the second one in the game that leads to a goal. Mm. But then with literally seconds, <laughs> seconds before the final whistle, 
the Germans get a free kick. <laughs> yeah, and th- this is so 89 minutes, Wolfgang Weber scores to make it 2 2. And there is an element of controversy about this. Um, and Gordon Banks talks about it in his autobiography as well. So right. Jack Charlton concedes a free kick for climbing on Uwe Seeler. So fair enough. You know, they've both gone up for a header, and Jack Charlton's basically just used his body to get him on the floor um, and you know, concede to free kick. I don't think there can be too many sort of concerns or protestations about that. The kick is taken by uh, Lothar Emmerich. It's struck into George Cohen in the wall. The rebound then falls to Held. Um, he, he then takes a shot and it, and it basically hits the body of Karl-Heinz Schnellinger. Yeah. This is the this is the controversial element. So George, okay. Gordon Banks protests in his autobiography that the ball had struck Schnellinger on the arm. Ah, uh, okay. The replay show that it actually struck him on the back. Yeah, but I didn't see too much wrong with it when, yeah. when I watched the goal. So I think it's a little bit of England thinking that it had hit the arm. So almost you know waiting for the whistle or whatever. It doesn't happen. The the ball, you know is deflected across the six-yard box. The England defence sort of caught looking the other way and basically Wolfgang Weber has has time to to level the score at 2-2 and force the match into extra time. And I think it's that thing of you have to play to the whistle just because you think that it is a, 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 you know, it's hit the arm or something. The referee, did, the referee didn't see any problems with it. And when you look at the replays, you don't see any problems with it. But the... At the time, they were all a bit like, "Hang on, was that?" Uh, by the time they they sort of that mental thing of, "Hang on, was that?" Uh, uh, you know, should that have been stopped or not? They turn and Weber's already got the ball in the net. So, yeah, it's um, a little bit of a lapse in concentration, but right place, right time for for Wolfgang Weber. Yeah, and you got like I said, I think, like you said, you can't really complain about the goal. The thing that that struck me the most was just as extra time begins, it's. I would have expected, considering they were sort of 30, 45 seconds away from, from grasping the World Cup and they can see this last minute equaliser, you expect England to come out quite um, a little bit downtrodden, maybe. Yeah. But they, they start extra time, the more buoyant side there. Absolutely. And yeah, I thought, I really did think that they'd be more sort of just a bit broken, a bit forlorn, but they come flying out of the traps, like just full of piss and vinegar so excited to be out there and they they i think they kind of grasped this last 30 minutes like we've got 30 minutes left to go here we might as well take every opportunity they can and it, it yeah it obviously worked <laughs> obviously worked yeah out. i mean the shoulders of the germans yeah yeah five minutes into extra time bobby charlton hits the post so i mean they're they're really sort of you know really pushing this and going yeah we're we're here you know we think that the germans are for the taking and we're really going to push this it feels like that it really does feel like watching watching the game back in the was it last summer it really did feel like the um the germans were the ones that although they just scored this last minute equalizer to keep themselves in it and within the first few minutes of extra time they just look absolutely knackered hmm. um the goal comes well. I mean, this is where the controversy starts, right? Because the, oh, yeah, this is the big one, yeah. Yeah, for sure. the, the first, or it's, it's the first goal of extra time. It's Jeff Hurst's second, second of the game, which puts England up three-two. And yeah, this is where the controversy starts because Hurst completes this like quite a brisk sort of turn and shot. Yeah, that rattles the underside of the crossbar and bounces. Well, I'm going to say on the line and out, right? Yeah, <laughs> and then you got the English. They they go off celebrating. 
the Germans are convinced they should just play on and that's where the camera cuts and the referee sort of runs over to the infamous Lino Tofik Bakramov who is the Azerbaijani mm. linesman not Russian um, who gives the goal and it's 3-2 like I've I watched the clip again and I think I must have watched it about 15 times yesterday mm. I'm not convinced even a little bit that it crosses the line obviously I'm not sad that it didn't but I'm I, I'm not convinced that that it crosses the line what about how did you feel about it well, actually, this goal has been studied using uh, like digital film analysis and computer simulation. Okay. To show that the yeah. the the laws of the game, yeah, hundred percent of the ball has to cross the line. Yeah. Only ninety-seven percent of the ball crossed the line. So, <sighs> okay. If that go. was to be given today, VAR yeah. would have ruled that out. Apparently, it needed something like two point six millimeters more to cross the line, and it would have been like a hundred percent a goal. But you know. I'm not it's complaining, an, but I'm just no. It, it's a really yeah. It's it's this the big controversy. It's the one yeah. that you know they talked about f- for years and years, and it's that iconic scene of the Swiss referee trotting straight after the linesman, and the linesman saying you know defiantly, "Yes, that was a goal." He's adamant, he, isn't he? Yeah. He's so convinced that the ball's over the line. So, I mean, yeah. why wouldn't the, he give it? And, but yeah, and the ref just goes, "Okay, that's good enough for me." Goal, and yeah. in, in, you know, Jeff Hurst runs off, you know, yeah. with his arms aloft and having a lovely old time. Yeah, and then there's there's sort of ten, eleven, what was it nineteen minutes left to play? I suppose, and the the Germans sort of bombard the English goal, but it's it's the the the, the final piece of commentary on this on this game has just become infamous in this country, isn't mm. it? It's the sort of they think it's all over. It is now, and just the just towards yeah. the end of the game I, I actually I think the the Jeff Hurst goal on 120 minutes is probably my favourite one because of Hurst's what he talked about it afterwards right so the goal is uh, West Germany basically sent all of their defenders forward as well they're basically playing 0-0-10 um, <laughs> formation to try and score all out attack minute. overload yeah. yeah exactly yeah just push everyone forward um, Bobby Moore wins the ball, picks out an unmarked Jeff Hurst with this like long down the field Big Sam esque pass. Hurst just carries it forward and just leathers it into the net. Mm. And after like a few years later, he admitted that this, this shot was. He said that it was the intention was to send the ball as far into the Wembley stands as possible should it miss <laughs> in order to kill some yeah. time on the clock. But instead, he scores this absolute world class like yeah. net buster goal. And then you get the most famous call in English commentary football history with Kenneth Wolstenholme saying, you know, well, I'm sure we'll include the clip into the uh, into the podcast for you to, to hear. Oh, it'll yourself. probably be the intro, won't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's just it's that I, that's the moment that most people will um, know of. They'll know that the the you know, the fourth goal, the Jeff Hurst hat trick goal. You know, and, and that commentary—that's the thing, the enduring memory, I suppose, that or, or thing that people will know from this game. Yeah, it's the iconic line, the iconic image. That's the one. I quite like as well that people are already pouring onto the pitch after the ball has left his boot. It's sort of like <laughs> people are already seeing that this is going towards the goal, and they're going, "Holy fucking shit! We're we're about to win the World Cup." Don't get enough good pitch invasions these days, do you? They're very yeah. much a thing of the past now. So yeah, and they're very very much frowned upon these days as yeah. well, aren't they? Everyone goes, "Oh, it's, it's a shame. We don't like to see that. We don't like to see that." And it's like, but no, we, we definitely do. do. We do yeah. like to see that. Yeah. 
That's exactly what we want. When Portsmouth won League Two and went up to League One and everyone invaded the pitch, you had BBC Solar Sport on the radio going, oh, and there's a pitch invasion and that's a shame. It sort of ruins the nice moment. And I was like, no, if I was there, I'd be on the bloody pitch. Don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Unfortunately, pitching invasions have gone the way of the streaker. They're not really... (laughs) Not a thing that you see on telly anymore. So Jeff Hurst hat-trick is the first, and as of the 2018 World Cup, only one ever scored in a World Cup final. Yeah, that's something to hang your hat on, Jeff. Mm. Uh, I quite liked as well that the nickname for this England team was the Wingless Wonders. The Wingless Wonders? Yeah, on account of their, like unconventional narrow attacking formation Um, so this sort of like diamond midfield no outright wingers sort of thing Um, so I quite liked that that nickname but the other thing that um, I sort of found myself in a YouTube rabbit hole of um, there's there's a, a lot of footage of when the old Wembley was actually demolished right and I thought um perhaps Germany got the last laugh because the the famous twin towers of Wembley when they were demolished in two thousand and three. It's a German built machine called the Goliath that was used to, to tear them down. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I guess they but, did. But it, it's it's really odd watching that footage because you're sitting there going, right. So I understand why we built a new Wembley. Fair enough. Why did we have to get rid of the original Wembley? Why did we have to get rid of the twin towers? Why did we have to tear down? where you know some of this country's greatest sporting moments ever have happened i just yeah. well the new wembley lends me. itself to to building a nice big lasagna in it so i think that's why they went for that <laughs> for that exactly design. yeah i mean the undersoil heating definitely keeps it warm and it, it means that by the time that your individual slice of lasagna is is delivered to you um, you can maintain temperature throughout the entire the entire piece but um, yeah. <laughs> So let's look at the legacy of this World Cup because I think, okay. as we mentioned earlier, it's sort of viewed in different ways around the World Cup. Um, in, this World Cup is viewed in different, like, through a few different lenses around the world and everything. Yeah. But in England, one of the enduring images is the, the celebrations in Wembley immediately afterwards where you've got Bobby Moore holding the Jules Rimet trophy aloft on the shoulders of Jeff Hurst and Ray Wilson with Martin Peters. Yeah. That, and that, that was a statue that West Ham actually had commissioned outside the Berlin ground. Um, that's the, that's the one, isn't it? That's the, I mm-hmm. that's the, like, if you could put one image on a postage stamp, that's going to be yeah. it, isn't it? To commemorate, commemorate that world cup. Yeah. And as of, well, as of July, 2018, it was the, um, the most watched event ever on British television with 32.30 million viewers. Now, I think that's changed since then. Um, I think, I'd love to know what replaced that. <laughs> you know what? I actually think it was um, Boris Johnson announcing the initial coronavirus lockdown. Uh, I'm going okay. to Google it right now. That makes... Okay, that makes a lot of sense, but... Yeah. I'm going to Google it. Mo- most um, watched British TV event. I suppose everyone would have tuned into that because that would have been sort of just after... Just after everyone finishes work, you've got about five five o'clock, everyone clocks off, and by 5.30, everyone's sat in front of BBC News waiting for the announcement that they don't have to go back into the office tomorrow, I think. Right, so here we go. The the top rankings. Number one is the 1966 World, FIFA World Cup final, 32.30 million viewers. Number two is the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. Uh, 
Oh, well. and the, these are what they d- d- class as most watched special events. So special events attracting large audiences carried on more than one channel. So then in terms of TV programs, you've got uh, EastEnders on Christmas Day in 1986. You've got... <laughs> um, in terms of most watched broadcast by year, in 2020, it was the Prime Ministerial Statement on COVID-19. Oh, and okay. then on t- so far this year, it's been the Prime Ministerial Statement on COVID-19 as well. So the World Cup still re- uh, remains number one, which good. is good. That's what we like to see. Boris only comes in at number eight on the overall list. So, yeah, he's some- somewhere down the list. Funnily enough as well, this top ten of, of like most watched stuff, right? There's four sporting events on it. Right. You've got the World Cup final as number one. The 1970 FA Cup final replay is number five. The 2012 Summer Olympics closing ceremony at nine and the opening ceremony at ten. Oh, okay. Interesting. Anyway, so in Germany, this goal resu- a goal resulting from a shot bouncing off the crossbar and hitting the line is actually called a Wembley tour. It <laughs> <laughs> was a Jeff Hurst. Yeah. So that that's actually yeah. become part of like their footballing language. Hmm. Um, I also quite like the the German term for a a uh, a game with no fans in it. So this is something that I I learned when you know the Bundesliga were the first sort of league to start up again after coronavirus. Yeah, and they said um, you know the these games with no fans in they call a Geigenspieler, a ghost game. Ah, uh, they've they've got some good words for things like that yeah. in the Germans. <laughs> so I quite like that. Yeah. There's there's a lot of sort of more unsavory things that I, I picked out that, that right. really that really frustrated me in terms of like the relationship between England and Germany and the rivalry and everything. So Germany don't consider England their great rivals. They look to the Netherlands as their true footballing rivals. The issue in England is that too many people look at the war as a reference for this rivalry. Yeah. And there's yeah. this really, really unsavory comment from um and it won't come as any surprise it was in the daily mail before oh, okay. the 1966 world cup final vincent mulcrone of the daily mail put germany may beat us at our national sport today but that would only be fair we beat them twice at theirs Ugh, um which is horrible and also this is the game that led to the creation of the two world wars and one world cup chant which is also <laughs> somewhat surprise, unsavory surprise. And yeah. the FA have actively encouraged people not to sing it. So. Yeah, some of the so, I think at the at the start, before before researching and going into this kind of this episode, this I have a weird relationship with this win and this tournament because it's it's this whole sixty six tournament and the sixty six win has been kind of mythologized in England and held up as this mm. kind of bastion of sporting achievement, right? <laughs> I always found it really annoying and a pain in the ass that we won the World Cup in 66. And not to be n- not to be some fucking contrarian, but it's something that so many people shout about and beat their chest over. Mm. I never saw it. So it means nothing to me, really. Yeah. Like, it's like a really good party that I was never invited to. Like, mm. <laughs> it's just something that's there and is consistently used as either a benchmark or a stick to beat current England teams with. Like, oh, we won it in 66. Yeah. Right. So before researching and going into this episode, like I was really hoping to find some kind of appreciation, which I think I have done, of of just the sporting side of it. And I 
what I wanted to just let go of was just yeah that this shouldn't be some kind of benchmark against what we need to measure every single England side against or it shouldn't be something to pathetically shout at Germans for like it, it mm. we could, as a country I feel like we could appreciate this as a World Cup win and not it, it really bugs it definitely during during Euro 2016 I, I, I watched a few games with someone who I would not class as a friend of mine but happened to be there and was consistently trying to start these chants and in the end we just walked away from him like I don't want to be yeah. around that person because it's like the two have no correlation whatsoever really like I don't th- just they happen to feature both of like to the same nations but the wars and the world cup have nothing to fucking do with each other so let that go and just enjoy the 66 win for what it was um and yeah, I think out of this episode now, I feel I feel like I found a bit more appreciation for it, and it doesn't just feel <laughs> I know annoying and feel like something I missed out on. It now feels like something I can maybe appreciate a little bit more, as as Jose Mourinho would say, football heritage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, f- for me, I, I think back of you know the the high points of the England team in in sort of like my memory. Yeah, Euro '96 was. Um, the closest thing that this country has probably had to like the World Cup in that we hosted the tournament and England got quite far and it was you know a, a, a really nice hot summer and everything and everyone just felt really there was just this wave of positivity and especially when you're you know eight years old it's sort of like it, it's just this magical wonderful thing so that that was really good and then obviously the you know how you know finishing fourth in in 2018 that was you know the the best uh, in, in my living memory that England had done at a, a World Cup and um you know that was that was pretty pretty special and everything but in in a way there was I noticed in the 2018 World Cup that there wasn't as much of this oh well you know we won it in 66 but commentators yeah. can't help themselves but sort of talk about oh you know is this going to be the team that you know throws off you know beat you know throws off the the, the chains or you know beats the ghost of 66 and it's like yeah why do some, we have to why do we I look know. at this as something that we have to beat rather than like oh yeah no we've done this before so can can we do it again but they look at it as like something that we have to like better or beat it's almost like an albatross around the neck <laughs> of modern english football like it's it always it, it, it's used as this kind of always something that we struggle to live up to rather than just appreciating the win i think and i think that's mm. what more people need to do is just appreciate the fact that we did win a world cup once but it doesn't need to be this fucking measuring stick against which yeah. to to berate and to measure every single team against going forward like you have these peaks and troughs in international football sometimes you're good sometimes you're not like just Mm. rather than yeah it shouldn't be it shouldn't be this this kind of yeah albatross around the neck so yeah i feel like i've come away with a bit more of an appreciation cool well i want to throw back to that simon burnton article in the guardian yeah yeah, please do um quickly because while in england it's held up as like the pinnacle of sporting achievement the Brazil in particular they saw it very much as a conspiracy against Latin American teams in the way that the refs were chosen and the way that the tournament was managed so in Simon Burton's piece he talks about how two days into the competition you know the journal do Brazil reported that the English have failed completely in their organization of this great competition they've taken no trouble whatsoever to offer good service they have substituted instead concern for something else for charging excessively for all the poor and inefficient services that they managed to offer the greed and lack of organization of the english is evident everywhere so pretty fucking scathing 
They complained <laughs> that the trains were always late, that the matches sometimes started late, that there was not enough tickets for foreign journalists, the telephones in the press centres didn't work properly, telegrams to news desks around the world had been taking as long as three hours to arrive at the other end, that media accommodation in London at a university hall's of residence was a lengthy drive from the press centre and was like a boarding school. Uh, with the all residents awoken at eight o'clock in the morning by a siren, so <laughs> it, it it's kind of like even when we have our greatest moment, we manage to bungle the organisation. <laughs> so it's Not no seen wonder they through rose tinted glasses everywhere. Then is it? No, it, it's no wonder it's seen as a conspiracy because it's sort of like oh, don't really not really bothered about you. So yeah, yeah. Um, Right, so, so to round it up, the million-dollar question, will England ever win another World Cup? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my very simple answer, yes. Okay. What about you? <laughs> uh, I think that 2018 was the closest that we've got. I didn't think yeah. that we'd win it, but I, it is nice to see us moving in the direction. Mm-hmm. However, okay. I think that when you look at how other nations are growing in strength and depth and everything we need to almost take one of those like root and branch approaches like Germany did that we've talked about before, where you look at training and management styles, investing in coaching, working with the clubs, taking a national view of the game and all of that sort of stuff. I think things are moving in the right direction, but there just needs to be more. And I think that if you start with increasing the number of coaches at a amateur level, you know, teaching kids in you know your local area or whatever the basics of the game then it can then it can grow and if all of those coaches are going from like an essentially an fa playbook of this is how we want you know english kids to be taught the game then i think that you can have that production line that other countries seem to have so when you look at you know france they've always got you know Kylian Mbappe came through. You've got Ousmane Dembele that's come through. There's countless youth prospects in academies around the world that could be the next big thing for France. Spain have got an absolutely outstanding future when you look at um, Ricky Pouche and uh, Ansu Fati at Barcelona. Germany will always be strong. I think England have some great options coming through phil foden's great mason greenwood if he can get some consistency Jaden sancho is pretty much already world class and he's 20 years old for christ's sake i wonder if we will have a better chance of winning a european championship or a nations league in the immediate term i would say never say never but you've got to shift the attitude of rather than looking at 66 as something to beat it's yeah. just going that's something that we've done let's try and do it again yeah, I mean, excellent, excellent point. I, I think that's definitely that's definitely the way to go. I think we've seen <clears throat> throughout look about doing this podcast that these root and branch sort of complete reviews sort of they they do work. We looked at Belgium last week and clearly they yeah. say that Project Two Thousand worked. Um, Japan and, systems worked. Germany's yeah, has worked exactly. Mm. There is a way to do it. Um, I think one thing I want to touch on, not to to bring the whole thing down on a somber note before we end, is another of the legacies that this tournament leaves, or this squad, this win. I think arguably the most important legacy of the nineteen ninety six uh, the nineteen sixty six side is the link to sort of between concussions and dementia within the Absolutely. squad because yeah. 
as, as of November 2020, obviously last uh, last week, week before, we did the Jack Charlton documentary, Finding Jack Charlton, mm-hmm. where he's uh, he suffered from dementia. Um, yeah, as of November 2020, Bobby, Jack, Martin Peters, Nobby Stars, and Ray Wilson have or have or, or had at some stage been diagnosed with as living with dementia. Mm-hmm. That's five of the starting eleven. Um, Jeff Hurst has been on record as saying that there's a strong sort of inarguable link between the sport and the disease and mm. I honestly think that without yeah, without wanting to end this story on a somber note that one of the most important legacies of this kind of triumphant side is for it to be this kind of beacon of proof that more needs to be done now to help the players and the families of the players suffering with that disease yeah um it's something that we we did touch on just a few weeks ago we we spoke about how unimaginable it must be to achieve something so great for your country and not to remember it yeah. <laughs> like that must be absolutely horrific we watched the jack charlton doc and mm. that's what's happened to at least five of the starting 11 um so i'm 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 going to put a link in the podcast description for the alzheimer society so i mean we record these half for fun and half because we're bored because lockdown is dull um but if something good can come of it and even if it's just a tenner or 20 quid going towards a good cause like i'd really like that so i'm going to put the link into the description so anyone listening we'll tweet it out on the socials as well um, absolutely we'll put the link into that uh into the podcast description if anyone wants to just drop a few quid to outside society that would be grand yeah please do and um yeah obviously any any donation can can help advance the research and uh, you know potential treatments for this and not just for you know you know f- footballing and sporting um, stars and and you know people who've you know had those kind of careers but but for for anyone you know and any any sort of treatment or any potential cure could you know understandably benefit hundreds of thousands of families all around the world so Excellent. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So sorry, this podcast didn't end on the chest-beating jingoistic <laughs> um, approach that you thought it did. But yeah, we won a World Cup once. Let's do it again. That's my that's my final Absolutely. thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So next week um, we are we're doing something for the the, the next couple of episodes that is. Um, a little bit self-indulgent so liam and Why i are not? going to be picking we're going to be picking out um our uh, to, we're going to be picking out our greatest games you know our favorite world cup games and we're just going to be chatting about them and saying why we think they're great and i'm going first and i've chosen germany nil italy two at the 2006 world cup because Ooh. i like italy and this one was a really really good game and i really enjoyed it and i want to talk about it so that's oh. what we're going to do goal di grosso goal di grosso absolutely (laughs) cool thank you very much for joining me liam anytime as always enjoyed myself absolutely and thank you listener for joining us as well we will see you very soon for another episode of got got need we hope you enjoy this one and we'll speak to you soon goodbye